Old Testament reading taken from the book of First Chronicles, chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. You will find it in the Church Bibles, page 420 and 421. First Chronicles, chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Today we began, as I said, our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we want to show from the Holy Scriptures that these things we confess as the church with all Christians everywhere do in fact come from the Scriptures. This means that we pick a text and we go deep into it uh, for a few moments, but it also means that we can't say everything about what we believe about God being our Father. So we will restrict ourselves to just what John says in these couple of verses, which is actually quite a lot, we'll see. Let's read from John's letter. 
And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. I believe in God the Father, the creed begins. With all of these sermons, we're just going to be asking ourselves a couple of very simple questions each week. What do we mean when we say this? How do we live it out? And do I believe it? What do we mean? How do we live it? Do I believe it? So let's start with the first question. What do we mean? A few weeks ago, uh, Sam and I had the privilege to spend the weekend at the Gross Munster. And then a couple of you uh, came as well to worship there on Sunday morning. And there was an occasion to be with pastors from around the world and to celebrate our common heritage of faith. Christoph Segrist, that, whom I'm getting to know, the pastor of the Grossmünster, was delighted to show us around the place. And he's been there for 17 years. But let me tell you, after 17 years, this guy is still really excited about Zwingli, about the Reformation, and about the privilege that he has to get to pastor this historic church. It was so cool to watch him just beam with joy as he showed us Zwingli's study, as he showed us the place where Zwingli and his friends translated the Bible into German. So Christoph Segrist is deeply familiar. There's probably not very many people who know more about Zwingli today than him. But the privilege of following in Zwingli's footsteps still surprises and thrills this pastor, and I loved watching him. And this is exactly, after all, what John feels like. At the end of chapter two, he's been reminding us that if we are children of God, we have a great responsibility. We've got to represent the family that we belong to. But then right in the middle of his challenge to us, which we'll return to in a moment, in the middle of this challenge, it suddenly strikes him afresh. You guys, he says, do you, verse 1 of chapter 3, do you realize this? The King James Version, I think, is best here. It says, behold, what manner of love is this? It's like he's saying, check this out. I had almost forgotten about this, but this is something we need to return to. And so we want to check this out with John. We want to check out at least three things that we mean when we say we believe in God, the Father. And they're all in this outburst of joy from John. 
The first thing is this. To have God as our father means that we have lavish love. Lavish love. There's a word we don't use very much in English, do we? Look, John says. Look at the love that the father has lavished on us. We might say, look at the love that he has wasted on us. I want you to think for a minute of how unnecessary it was for the Lord Jesus in his first miracle in John chapter 2 to turn the water into wine at the end of the wedding feast and to make it the best wine of the evening. His first miracle, totally unnecessary in the strict sense of the word. And yet John says the same thing here. The love of the Father has been filled to the brim of our hearts and now is spilling over out of our hearts and into our lives in such a lavish and extravagant way. It's almost too much. It's almost wasteful, we might say. The Father's love, John erupts here, is so massive that we are going to need all of eternity to see it, to experience it, to live within it, to love and live out of it. The Father's love, John says, is lavish. It's great and big. Secondly, he says, this love from the Father is otherworldly, otherworldly. Some of the scholars suggest that there's an idiom here in the Greek that literally says something like, from what country does this love come from? The world, John right away says, does not get us Christians. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 3. And so when many people in the world see this otherworldly stuff in us, believers, when they see, for example, how quick we are to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, would you forgive me please? When they see our joy in the midst of sorrow, when they see a peace in us that can't be understood, there are many times when they're just not going to get it. Where on earth, they think, do these people get this stuff? And that's just it, isn't it? This love that has been poured into our hearts, this love that's starting to spill out into our words and our actions and our attitudes is not from any country that anybody's heard of. Not anywhere around here anyway. It comes from no place on earth. It comes from the Father who is, after all, the Lord of heaven. And so it's lavish, it's otherworldly. And at least one other thing here. It's a kind of love that's so powerful that it gives new birth. It's a rebirthing kind of love. There's an American philosopher, Cornel West, who likes to talk about the painful but wonderful love push that our mamas had to give us in order for us to be born. And he loves to celebrate that and for us to get in that space where we realize how wonderful that love push is. John here is talking about an even greater and even more intimate and even more personal and even more costly love push that gives us new birth as children of God. You know, when my birthday rolls around, as it just has, my mama never, never fails to remind me that really 
on a kid's birthday, the first thing they should be doing is calling their mom and saying, thank you for carrying me and for giving me birth. I'm so glad to be alive and it's all because of you. Isn't it marvelous that John here, after all these years, after his new birth, when he starts to talk about the responsibility of being God's child in the world, he stops for a minute and he erupts into this burst of wonder, an old man rejoicing over his status as a child, a child of God. And I love how immediately John says, we're not just called, chapter 3, verse 1, children of God. We're not just called it. But then he stops and he says, and that is what we are. We're children of God. And it astonishes him. And you can read it right on the scriptures page. And it should astonish us as well. How amazing, how overflowing, how lavish, how rebirthing is this love that the Father has given to us. So that's a couple of things that we believe when we say, I believe in God, the Father. Second question, what do we do with this belief? So when I was in high school in America, for some reason for about six or eight weeks, the R&B and rap and hip hop station uh, in our area, for some reason they allowed a gospel singer to get on the airwaves and sing his hit song, Stomp, Kirk Franklin, I believe his name was. And the chorus, I remember, said, I can't explain it. I can't contain it. Jesus, your love is so amazing. It lifts me high up to the sky. And when I think about your goodness, it makes me want to stomp, right? Kind of silly, but also pretty cool to hear on the secular radio. If we can't explain it, which is true, if we can't contain it, which is even more true, what are we supposed to do? with this lavish love that's been poured out on us. Well, this love of the Father that's spilling out, John teaches us, out of heaven into the life and death and resurrection and presence of Jesus, his Son, it's got to flow through us and out of us, doesn't it? This is what it means to be a child of God. You know, I always hated it when my parents used to say, Son, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Just annoyed me. And then sometimes my friends would be over at the house and we'd be getting ready to leave and I would have the car keys and my dad would embarrass me in front of them and he'd say, keep the shiny side up, son. And then he would say, you know, bring this car back in better shape than I'm giving it to you. You got that? Does this sound familiar? You've heard the speech. Oh, and he would say, right in front of my friends again, you're a stager. Don't forget that you represent our family. Bring back not just the car, but our family name in better shape than you found it. And I would say, okay, dad. And I would get out of there as fast as I could. Privilege and responsibility. As a teenager, I thought, Ugh, this is the worst speech. But this is, after all, what it means to be a creature, period. 
made by a creator who has revealed himself to be father. Responsibility. This is what Israel had. This is what the Lord Jesus himself had. And this is what we now have when we confess, I believe in God, the father. You know, God called Israel in Exodus, my firstborn son. And that means for Israel then, God's firstborn son, privilege, great privilege, but also great responsibility. God declared that Jesus was his one and only son. And Jesus was dearly loved by his father. But he had to show, didn't he, what the father was like. It was his job. And so when we confess that we believe in God the father, we're not just talking theology but we're actually talking ethics, aren't we? We're saying what we commit ourselves to. You've got to believe it, yes, but you've also got to live out of your status as a child of God. You know, in our day and age, lots of people talk comfortably and sort of generically about, well, we're all children of God, you know, And there's a sense in which that's true. We'll talk about that in our uh, class on the Apostles' Creed today. But the Bible says that in Jesus Christ, we are daughters and sons as children of God. And then immediately, we are called, aren't we, into a holy obligation by virtue of our membership in this family. We must represent the family. And so we need to ask ourselves, don't we? If this lavish love has been poured into my heart, it needs to spill out into my life in some specific ways. That means that in every relationship that I have, with my family, with my friends, with my coworkers, with creation itself, through my money and through my time and through my attitude and through my actions, I have to ask myself, what would it look like and sound like and feel like if I were to show a little bit of the reality that God is a loving heavenly father and that I am his child. Now John makes it clear, this is why he's so astonished after all, that we are not made children because of our ability to meet these family expectations. That's not how it works. But rather because we've been made children by pure grace, lavish love. Now we've got to be who we are. So what do we say when we believe that God is Father? How do we live it? And then finally we have to ask ourselves, do you believe it? Do we believe it? You know, I think that for some reason I'm reflecting a lot on my own childhood during this sermon, but I I think when I was growing up, I got to a point where I was kind of tired of being a kid and everything that that meant. You know, I wanted some grown-up responsibilities and privileges especially. I think that this also happened a little bit in my Christian life as a child of God. When I was a child, I had, my parents will tell you, I had great wonder at the love of God. And my love for other people and for God was simple and it was pure. But then I started getting, you know, serious about my faith. 
And ironically, I lost my childhood wonder at that simple fact that God is my heavenly father. And then I started to believe stupid things. Stupid things like, for example, God loves me because I believe that Jesus died for my sins. That sounds okay at first, right? God loves me because I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Okay. No, friends, this is not the Christian faith. This is not the good news of the Bible. This is not what our creed teaches us. This is not the kind of faith that makes us sing, that makes us burst out into songs of wonder and joy, like John. Jesus doesn't come and live on earth, die for our sins, rise from the dead, and then go back to his father so that he can go up to his father and say, excuse me for a moment, Um, I've done all this for these lousy people, and now you really must love them. And the father says, okay, I'll love them now. Somehow that got into my head and into my heart because I wanted to grow up and grow out of my childhood wonder at the love of my father. But no, the love of God, as we've been saying, bursts out of heaven in Jesus the Son. And the Son, John tells us in his gospel, is the exact representation and expression of his Father's heart of love for us. The Son lives out his Father's overflowing love in his life, in the way he gave up his life, in the way he rises to new life, in the way that he brings us into the family and into all of the new life that we have as children of God. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for your sins. But Jesus came and lived and died and rose and lives now for you because the Father loved you. I love, speaking of love, that our first meditation on the Apostles' Creed takes us right into the heart of this mysterious but lavish love of our God and Father. I love that the first thing the creed teaches us right out of the gate is to believe not in the total power of God, we'll get to that, not even in his power to create, to resurrect, to recreate, those are wonderful things and we'll get there. I love that the first thing that we're taught in the creed is not even that Jesus has lived and died and risen for us. Marvel of marvels. But I love that the first thing we learn and we celebrate when we say the Apostles' Creed is that this God of ours is not some generic, faceless force or this vague feeling of love and acceptance out there somewhere. But that this God is Father. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus. And by faith in Christ, he is now our loving father. When we realize this, we realize also, don't we, that the purpose of this lavish love from our father is for this love to spill out of our lives into the lives of our friends, family, church, into the lives of our enemies, into the lives of our neighbors, whether we like them or not, out of our lives and into the lives of people who look and speak 
and think and live and believe differently than we do. The love of God our Father is, John tells us, lavish and limitless. After all, let's not forget, it has reached me and it has reached you. But it's this same overabundance of love from our Father that allows this love to spill out into our lives and to those who need it most. The reality is John is teaching us, you know, actually, if you are a child of God. You know it. You know, chapter two, verse 29, if you have begun, as John says, to do what is right because you belong to this God. You know whether you're eagerly awaiting the chance to see your father face to face, verse 28 in the face of Jesus. You either long for it or you don't. You know whether you are filled, chapter three, verse three, with this hope that yes, you're on the way to becoming like Jesus, but you aren't there yet, but one day you will be like him. You know, I've been having days recently where I wake up and I think, Of course I have days where I'm just like, give me coffee, I don't wanna talk to anybody. But there are other days when I wake up and I think, I can't believe that I live in Switzerland. This is so cool. I can't believe that I get to wake up next to a woman who actually knows me really well and still loves me. How do you get that? I can't believe that I get to do what I love to do and that you guys pay me to do this. This is really cool. I have a pretty wonderful, wonderful life. And every now and then I'm stunned and I realize it and it turns my heart thankful and childlike, I think. John shows us here, if you are a child of God, you don't wake up each morning and think, well, of course God loves me. If God's gonna love someone, it would be someone like me but rather you wake up and you think, wait a second, me? Are you sure? What ridiculous, lavish love the Father has shown and poured out to me in his own son, the son of his love, our Lord Jesus. And when we confess, I believe in God the Father, In a sense, we're trying to believe the unbelievable here. That the God of glory could be father to us, call us his dear child. That God would love me as he loves his own son. And so, the question is, what do you believe? Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvel of your love. Help us never to graduate from it and grow up and move out away from it, but always to return to it as children with wonder and awe, just as old man John did in his letter. And help us to live as if we really belong to you and all that means. And we ask it together in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.